text comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 20 through 29, and it can be found on your pew Bible on page 832. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and will call upon his name. And we do that now. We lift up the cup of salvation according to the gospel and we call upon you. You who are our chosen portion and our cup. You are the one who holds our lot. You set the boundary lines for our inheritance and they are beautiful because you are our inheritance. And so we ask, Father, that you would increase our not only our hunger and our thirst after you in these minutes, but also our ability, our capacity to receive your gift of yourself to us through the Lord Jesus. And we pray earnestly now for those who are not yet uh, reconciled to you through your son, those upon whom your wrath remains even this morning. We pray that by your grace you would work now. Faith, we believe, comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we ask that you would intervene graciously and extravagantly in the lives of the unbelieving and enable them. Say, say to them, command, let there be light so that they are able to see the light of the knowledge of your glory today in the face of Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, um, it's an interesting parallel in uh, Scripture that it was eating against God's command that killed us all. And it is eating according to God's command that saves us in the gospel. God's call to us in the gospel, or he calls to us in the gospel because he knows that we're starving to death. He knows that we're dying of thirst and he gives us the gospel, which is a feast. The gospel is a feast that we eat and drink with our ears. Listen to Isaiah 55. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Listen, and by listening, eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. It's the gospel. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that you may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. These are the the costliest promises that God has ever made to men. And they come to us as they do 
to all the world at the greatest of prices. And Jesus is announcing, friends, in our passage that he is willing not merely to pay the price of those promises so that his people might receive them, but to exchange himself to be the price of those promises for us. He is giving himself at the cross in order to secure the gospel's feasts of promise or the gospel's feast of promises to his people, anyone and everyone who will repent of their sins and call upon his name. Now we're in the second week of three weeks where we are taking the measure, as I explained last week, we're going to take the measure of the cross by looking at these three cups that Jesus mentions in Matthew 26. And last week we looked, when we looked at our Lord's a season of prayer in Gethsemane, we thought about the, the first cup that we thought about was the cup that Jesus received from his Father on the cross, the cup of God's wrath, the cup that Jesus drank alone. Friends, that's the cup that we had earned. That's the cup that we filled because of our sins. And Jesus on the cross drained that cup down to its dregs exhausting the wrath of God for his people. And this week we think about the second cup, which is the cup we received from Jesus. This is the cup Jesus earned. This is the cup he filled with God's blessings for us. This is the cup he gives to us in the gospel. The cup we receive from him is filled with God's blessing. And it, it's, it's, it's a cup that is available to any and all who will come to him by repentance and faith. So if you entered this service as a non-Christian, I want you to know at the beginning that does not have to be your destiny at the end of the service. I wonder if you came in here thinking to yourself, could it be possible that I could be changed in my standing before God and that my eternal destiny could change within these four walls. I hope you did because I have prayed that it would. This cup which we receive from Jesus, Jesus doesn't drink from. He's instructed us to drink from it and and, and enjoy the feast that it represents until the day of his return, and then there will be a different cup. And that's what we'll look at next week. But this morning, what I'd like to do with you is think about uh, this second cup that we receive from Jesus and take the measure of the cross with it as we think about how the gospel is a feast and three things about that feast of the gospel. First It is the feast that Jesus prepared for us on his cross. And secondly, it's the feast, the gospel is the feast that Jesus brings us from his cross. And thirdly, the gospel is the feast that we in Christ enjoy because of his cross. So let's look first at the theme of the the gospel as the feast that Jesus prepared for us on his cross. I know that may sound like a strange way to describe the cross, but friends, Jesus' language here uh, doesn't leave us with any other choice. Uh, we, we call verses 26 through 28 here uh, the words of institution, and we associate them with uh, communion, and we rightly should because these are the, this is the place in Matthew's gospel that we would, we would understand as the place where Jesus is instituting the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and we're going to celebrate that uh, next week. But, but friends, I want to I suggest to you that these words of institution are only secondarily about the elements in the sacrament. What they are primarily is Jesus' interpretation of his cross. They are, <clears throat> in the hours before his crucifixion, what Jesus is doing is supplying his disciples and us with an accurate interpretation of his cross. What is intention is for his cross, what his accomplishment will be on the cross, and how the work of his uh, saving death is then going to be applied to people. 
and particular sinners. And what he's saying, that, I mean, really, the shocking interpretation of what Jesus is, is saying here, the language that he uses and the actions that he undertakes. I mean, remember, he's at a meal. And so he's explaining the cross using a meal. And what, that really, what the, the, the image is, he's saying, I'm going to the cross to prepare a feast for my people. And there are two elements to that feast that we're going to look at. One, it's a feast of promises. And secondly, it's a feast of his person. So let's think first about how the, the feast that Jesus prepares on the cross is a feast of his promises. Look at verse 28 in particular. For this, he, he takes a cup, right, in verse 27. He gives thanks uh, for it and then gives it to his disciples and says, drink, uh, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. Now notice, notice, very interesting. This is my blood of the covenant. So he's linking his death to the covenant. And we know uh, that what he's referring to is the new covenant. We know that from the other gospels and from uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. Now, the New Covenant, th- there are a lot of places we could go to unpack that in the Old Testament, but the, the place I want to go with you this morning is Jeremiah chapter 31, and then we'll look at a single verse in Jeremiah 32. So if you'd turn with me to Jeremiah 31, which is on page 660 in your pew Bible. Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31. I want to make sure that we see, when Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, he's saying something. There is a massive iceberg, as it were. That's the tip of a massive iceberg of what Jesus understands he is going to accomplish through his death on the cross, and therefore what he is going to confer upon his people uh, through his cross. So look at Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Oh my goodness, how beautiful is that? Friends, the first thing I want you to notice is look at the height of those promises. What's the the highest height? that God promises in the new covenant. It's not forgiveness. It's not having his law in our minds or having it written on our hearts. It's in the second half of verse 33. I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, this the, the, the new covenant is really the same old covenant. This is the theme and refrain all the way from before the fall in Genesis 1 And after the fall in Genesis 3.15, it's what God has promised. It's the ultimate goal for for why God has promised the seed of the woman to conquer and to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. God is coming in to claim his people for himself so that he will be their God and they will be his people. This is the single-minded focus of God from the very first page of the Bible. I will be their God. I will take them as my own. And they shall be my people. I will give myself to them. And I will take them as my own. That is staggering. That's the highest height of the new covenant. God is his own greatest gift. But second, look at the depth. The depth of God's promises here. First, there is pardon. Do you see that at the end? I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He's just gotten done in verses 31 through 32 describing all the failure of their history. 
God is not, doesn't look at our histories with rose, rosy-colored lenses, right? He, he looks at the fact, this is so important, my friends. Because, you know, when God offers forgiveness in Jesus Christ, it's not because he is dealing with some facsimile of who you are. He offers it to real sinners. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. So the promise of forgiveness, hallelujah. So the promise of forgiveness is extended through Jesus Christ to sinners. Not to holy people. At some point, you should be jumping in the aisles and kicking your heels together. So there's this promise of pardon. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's God's pledge. That's the first measure of the depth of these promises. Look at the second measure. That deals with the past. And now going forward, there's a transformation of nature. That's how deep this covenant goes. Look, look up earlier in verse 33. I will put my law within them. I, notice this. God is saying, I'm not just going to teach him my law. I'm going to put my law within them. Or other translations say, I will write it upon their minds. Or I will put, it, put my law in their minds. And then I will write it on their hearts. Amazing. It's going to change his people in the new covenant. He's not just going to give them a bunch of rules. He's going to change their nature. See, what he's describing is that in this new covenant, what's going to come with it is not just a new relationship with God, but a a totally new nature. And then consider the length of it. If you go... If you go with me just one page or, depending on your Bible, two pages over to chapter 32 in Jeremiah, verse 40. See, really, if you want to understand the substance of the new covenant, I would recommend this afternoon that you read chapter 31 and chapter 32 of Jeremiah. And you'll see a lot of the themes get repeated and and opened up. But look at verse 40 now. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. You see, this, this is an eternal covenant that I will not, look at this, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. That echoes verse 33 from chapter 1. That they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. Oh, if you are cynical about God, may that cynicism be blown to smithereens by that statement. I will rejoice in doing them good. God rejoices in doing sinners good. Do you believe that? Oh, I hope you believe it. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. That sounds like the greatest commandment, doesn't it? This is now God's heart and God's soul pledging all that he is to ensure that the greatest commandment will be fulfilled from our side. Oh, that's the length of this covenant. It's everlasting. Then finally, I want you to go back to Matthew 26 with me and and think about the breadth of this covenant, these promises that God is making. And Jesus is the one who lets us know the breadth in verse 28, right? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to feel the breadth of that. Right, the extravagance of that. We should be in awe that God would plan the pardon of many. Right, that his generosity would overflow to many. We should, we should rejoice in the breadth of that generosity, but we should also be sobered, my friends, by its narrowness. Because he does not say all. He does not say poured out for all for the forgiveness of sins. There is nothing more urgent facing any human being. No issue, no opportunity facing any human being more urgent than the need for clarity on whether or not you are one of those many that Jesus is talking about. The gospel is not like gravity. 
Gravity applies to us without our choice, without our action, without our response. We are on the planet, therefore gravity binds us. The gospel is not that way. You must respond. You are not in the many unless you receive Christ, unless you humble yourself before him in repentance and faith. That many is not about you unless you have come to Christ. So it is very broad and very generous. And yet it is also so, if we're, if we're honest about it, it is soberingly narrow. So, so it makes sense that Jesus would say, press in by the narrow gate. Press in. Do not look at the offer of the gospel and just assume that it's always going to be there. Take it like it's treasure. And press in. Don't be a rubbernecker. Don't be a spectator. Press in, my friends. And these are just staggering promises, right? The height of them, the depth of them, the length of them, and the breadth of them. And what we need to do before we look at the best portion of this feast that Jesus is preparing on the cross is we need to, we need to acknowledge that there is no human right, no human right to any of those promises. There, friends, there is no human right to the knowledge of God. All knowledge of God is the gift of God. All knowledge of God is conferred exclusively through Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus says in Matthew 11, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The knowledge of God is not a human right. It is a divine gift. There is no human right to forgiveness of sins. Friends, no human right to forgiveness of sins. No one can say, you owe me, God. Friends, unless you are gripped by that, the cross will just seem like a thing on a checklist. There is no human right to forgiveness. It is a divine gift. It is purchased at the price of the blood of Jesus Christ, and it is conferred exclusively through Jesus Christ. Nor, my friends, is there any human right for us to have our hearts set apart by God as a canvas on which he paints his masterpiece, his self-portrait with his law. We don't have a right to any of those things because we're human beings. They're all divine gifts. The only rights we have to them are in response to the promises of God which he makes out of his sheer grace to us. So the gospel is a feast of promises unlike any other. But most fundamentally, it is a feast of a person. The feast that Jesus goes to the cross to prepare is about his person. He is not only the purchaser of the new covenant, but he himself is the greatest promise he purchases for us. Now that's shocking again, but it's the only conclusion that I think you can reasonably draw from his language in verses 26 through 28. Look again with me at how shocking this language is. And we, we just have to we have to just kind of get past our numbness. We have to pray that God will let us feel the force of these familiar words with a freshness. Verse 26, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Now, I think that sometimes in our zeal to steer clear of a Roman Catholic understanding of the sacrament, that we overcorrect. And therefore, we underread and therefore underbelieve what Jesus is saying here. It is so magnificent, the magnitude is overwhelming. He is saying that he is both the fulfiller and the fulfillment of the new covenant. He gives himself on the cross for his people in order to give himself from the cross to his people. He is not, friends, Jesus Christ is not the service provider to sinners. 
He is the greatest gift that he can give to sinners. What does the Christian life amount to in the end? Does it amount to simply being the beneficiary of Jesus' service to sinners? Or does it amount to a living communion with the Lord of glory? What does Jesus say on the night before his crucifixion to his disciples? I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, and I in you. There is no way to think of a branch apart from the vine. All that the branch is comes from the vine. The greatest gift that Jesus has to give is himself, my friends. Now how does he, I mean really, think, think back to Jeremiah 31. What's the highest height of the covenant, of the, of the new covenant? I will be their God and they shall be my people. God's going to give himself to his people in the new covenant. And when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of that. Not just the fulfiller of that, I'm the fulfillment of that. What it's going to mean for you to be forgiven and pardoned is that you are now going to be, you're going to be in me. There's going to be a union with me. That's what a Christian is. Now for some of you, I know this is new. And isn't God merciful and patient that he would bring you to a place in your life where he would want you to know this? See, there's a difference between being untaught and being unteachable. It's possible that you have a defective understanding of the Christian life because you've never been taught. It's also po- and, so, and so praise God for his mercy. And may you embrace the truth of his word. But it may also be true that you have a defective view of the Christian life because you're unteachable. You've been exposed to the truth and you resist it because its implications are threatening to you. And what I would say to you is praise God for his mercy that he's calling you to repent of that. So how is God going to do this? How is Jesus going to be this this great gift of the covenant? Well, turn with me to Isaiah 42, if you would, which is on page 602 in in your pew Bible. Yeah, we're going to move around a lot, so your fingers might develop some calluses today. It's okay, it's good for you. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, are the first of what what are called the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Okay? And these these are beautiful prophecies that are fulfilled ultimately by the Lord Jesus. And in verses 1 through 4... God is speaking about the servant, introducing the servant to us. And then in verses 5 through 9, he's speaking directly to the servant about his mission. So verses 1 through 4, God is commending the servant to us. And in verses 5 through 9, he is speaking directly to the servant about his mission. So look, you'll recognize these verses. Behold my servant whom I uphold. He's saying to us, look at my servant. Take him in. My chosen in whom my soul delights. This is what I love. This is the one I love. I have put my spirit upon him. Do you notice three persons there? I have put my spirit upon him. You see that? He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's his mission. He's going to set all the nations right. That's a global mission. He, and how's he going to do that? Is he going to be a tough guy? Is he going to be like Caesar or like Alexander the Great? Look, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He's not going to yell. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's going to be so powerful. Now notice already these, these strands in the portrait of the servant that God is giving to us. He's going to be so powerful. He's going to establish justice in all the nations. And yet this same powerful one is going to be so gentle that he is not going to break a bruised reed in his conquest. And he is not going to extinguish a dimly burning wick in his, in, in his conquest. That's amazing. He will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He's going to be a ruler. Now, now, now God speaks to the servant. Thus says God the Lord, 
who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to, his, to the people on it this, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. Now he's addressing the servant. I have called you. That's a singular you. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you, again, singular you, you by the hand and keep you, singular you. I will give you, singular you. Now notice, he's addressing the servant. Now look at this very strange phrase. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. Do you see what he's saying? He said, that's very shocking because he's saying to the servant, your mission, the way you're going to accomplish your mission, the way you're going to establish justice among all the nations, the way you're going to do that without having to raise your voice in the streets or cry aloud and without uh, breaking a bruised reed and without, um, uh, excuse me, without extinguishing a dimly burning wick, the way you're going to give sight to the blind, the way you are going to give liberty to the captives, the way you are going to bring them out of the dungeon is that I'm going to give you as a covenant to all the peoples. You're going to be a covenant to the people. You're going to be a light for the nations. You're a covenant for the whole world, people, the people is probably Israel and Judah, and the nations are everyone else. Now, that's a very strange image because we would expect God to say, I'm going to give you to fulfill one side of the covenant. Because a covenant has two sides. God's side, man's side. And notice what he's saying here. God is saying, you're going to actually be the whole covenant. You're going to fulfill both sides. Now that's staggering. Because what that means is that when Jesus holds that cup in his hand in Matthew 26, he knows that he is literally holding the whole world in his hand. He's holding a whole world of prisoners in his hand who sit in darkness in the dungeon of sin. He knows that he's holding a whole world of of bruised reeds and dimly burning wicks. He knows he's holding a whole world in his hand of people who have been blinded by sin. And he knows that that whole world has been entrusted to him and him alone. And that that mission, which is announced in Isaiah 42, is going to be accomplished by him being bruised, by him being extinguished, by him entering the dungeon and setting the captives free. He knows that he is the only mediator between God and man. That it will be his captivity that purchases the liberty of the prisoners. And what is it when they're free? What is it that he wants for their freedom? What does he want them to do with their freedom? And what is it when he gives them sight, when he gives sight to the blind? What is it that he wants them to see? himself that he wants those who receive sight according to his covenant achieving labor of love he wants those who receive sight to feast their eyes on him he wants them to when they are set free when the captives are set free he wants them to enjoy what freedom ultimately is when the sun if the sun shall free you you shall be free indeed and what is the ultimate goal of freedom according to the gospel it is to to fly to Christ to feast on him oh friends it is a beautiful vision Jesus is saying, I, uh, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, my blood of the covenant. I'm purchasing all these promises. I'm purchasing the whole world of prisoners, and I'm purchasing their liberty and their sight. That's the feast that he prepares for us on the cross. The gospel is more than that, though. I mean, that's what that's what's, has struck me so much this week as I've been thinking about this message is that, you know, the news that God in the person of his son ha- 
has, achieved, has prepared this feast, all these promises, that there is even a gospel to declare, right? That there is good news of redemption accomplished to be heralded in the world, to be announced that there is news, that there is a savior for sinners and who has purchased salvation for sinners and, particu- and the particulars of how he has done that. that. The fact that just the good news exists is so staggering. But you know, that's not all the good news of the gospel because what scripture teaches us is that not only does Jesus prepare that feast on his cross, but he also brings it to us from the cross. Let me explain what I mean. What I mean is that the preparation of the feast is just the beginning. Now, I need, to, I, need to, I need to give you a, a, a little distinction here that I think will help. The two categories that will help you as you read the Bible, and they'll be helpful this morning. Theologians make a distinction between what they call, and I've talked about this with you before, but I don't want to hold you accountable for it yet, okay? I didn't give you a little pop quiz. So theologians will often make a distinction, Reformed theologians in particular, make a distinction between what they call uh, redemption accomplished and what they call redemption applied. The difference between accomplishment and application. Now, what what is that distinction about? Well, redemption accomplished refers to those things that Jesus did in history for sinners, right? Those acts of his life, his, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. And through those acts, right, he has purchased a salvation for his people. But no one benefits from those unless and until those benefits of that redemption are actually applied to particular sinners' lives. So I go back to my illustration about gravity. Gravity applies to every human being without our consent and without our action. The gospel is not like that. The gospel and all the benefits of Christ must be brought and applied to a particular sinner's life. And I think Jesus, what Jesus does here at the table illustrates this distinction. And and so I think it's important to notice what he's doing back in Matthew 26. Sorry, we're going back to Matthew 26. Because you notice... I mean, I told you earlier that these words that Jesus speaks interpret the cross, but it's not just his words that interpret the cross and, what, and the feast of the cross. His actions also, I think, are meant to interpret his cross to us. There are actions of institution, as it were. Now, you notice, here's what I mean. I mean, think about what happens at the Last Supper. Jesus doesn't simply hold the bread up and say, look at the bread, this is my body, and then put it down. He doesn't then hold the cup and say, this cup is my blood of the covenant, and then put it down. That's not what he does, is it? He doesn't wave those things in front of the disciples. What does he do? He explains what they are, and then what does he do? He doesn't leave them on the table and say, come and get it. Oh, this is so important, my friends. This is so important. He takes the emblems of his death and he puts them in the hands of his disciples. He who is going to accomplish redemption is showing that he is also the one who is going to personally apply all the benefits of that redemption to each of his people's lives. Now, lest you think I'm over-reading the text, let's look at some other indications in the New Testament and see uh, what you think. Friends, this is important before we do that. Uh, I, I do need, you know, I get carried away and then I look back at my notes and say, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you this. See, this goes back to the message a couple weeks ago. The salvation of sinners is not in the hand of sinners. It's in the hand of Jesus Christ for sinners. Okay, Jesus, the, the Jesus of the Bible does not simply put the cross on the table and say, come and get it. 
Now, he does call everyone to repent and believe, but the Jesus of the Bible also, as we're going to see from John 6, for those who are his, actually brings all the benefits of what he has done to their lives particularly and ensures that his cross will be infallibly effective for everyone he purchased at Calvary. So turn with me first to John chapter 10, which is on page uh, 896 in your pew Bible. It's also in our call to worship this morning. John chapter 10. Again, you know, I know these are familiar verses, And the problem with familiarity is they stop shocking us. (laughs) So let's let's seek God's grace to be appropriately and reverently shocked. So in verse 14, if you start up at, at John chapter 10, verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my life, I lay down my life for the sheep, okay? Now, that's redemption accomplished. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die for my sheep. I'm going to do that in history, okay? I'm going to accomplish redemption. And then verse 15, but does it end there? Just as the Father knows me, uh, excuse me, verse 15, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Now verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. This is probably referring to everybody other than, than Israel at the time, right? Probably he's, he's referring to the, the church across the ages. I, now notice this next phrase. I must bring them also. Not they must be brought. He's envisioning sheep who are going to be gathered to him after his ascension to the Father's right hand. And yet he is saying, I must bring them also. Not other people will bring them in my name. I must bring them also. He's the only one who can. And they will hear and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. You see, see, he's, he's envisioning... His whole church across the ages is one flock with a single shepherd. And he is the one who is going to bring personally every one of those sheep. He accomplishes redemption for his church by laying his life down for the sheep. And then all the benefits and power of that laying down of his life, he personally brings to each one of the sheep and brings them to himself as he does it. Now, is that mysterious? Yes. Is it glorious? So, he brings them by his voice, not somebody else's voice speaking hearsay about Jesus, but Jesus' voice speaking about Jesus to each one of his sheep. He doesn't delegate that to anybody. And you say, well, wait a second, that's That's weird. Are you sure you're not overreading that, Mike? Well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, page 977. I hope you ask questions like that of me as I'm preaching. Hopefully quietly to yourself until I get to the door. But you should be asking those questions. Is he, is he pushing this farther than the scriptures allow? Look at Ephesians 2, verse 17. Now, this is in the context where, where Paul is explaining to uh, Gentile believers how Jesus uh, and his ministry, I'm, I'm summarizing a lot of text here, so I will probably leave something important out, but Jesus, I mean, Paul is summarizing how Jesus' ministry is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, and how in Jesus, Jew and Gentile are being reconciled. And he speaks now in verse 17, speaking of Jesus, and he says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. Now that's saying, Paul is saying that Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. And so you have to ask the question, 
what does he mean? He's writing to people in Ephesus. He's writing to Gentile believers in Ephesus. So what is Paul saying when he says that Jesus came to them in Ephesus who were far off and then he also preached peace to those who were near? Is that just Paul saying Jesus's ministry was just as much for Gentiles as it was for Jews? Well, I suppose in a certain sense, that's, a, that's one legitimate aspect of that verse that's being said. That, that would be like, the redemption that Jesus accomplished, he accomplished for his entire church, which is, which is drawn from all the nations, not just Israel. That, that's true. But my question is, is Paul saying more than that here? Did Jesus, is he saying that Jesus really came to Ephesus through the preaching of his apostle? And through the preaching of his apostle, was it Jesus who was preaching and keeping the promise he made in John 10, 16, to call his sheep, to bring them personally by through his voice being heard through the voice of his apostle? Is he saying that? And I think he is, and I'll show you why. Chapter 4 in Ephesians, verse 21. assuming, well, actually, let's start verse 20. I apologize. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, here's, here's a place where the ESV lets us down. And the New American Standard is more helpful because there is no, in the Greek, there is no word about in verse 21. Here's how verse 21 actually reads. Assuming that you have heard him. Now I want you to think about that. Ephesus is nowhere near Palestine. Paul has a vision of understanding how Jesus keeps the promise of John 10. What Paul is celebrating here is the reality that the reason there are Christians in Ephesus is because Jesus has brought them. He came with his voice to Ephesus and spoke through to his sheep, called his sheep, spoke to them, applied. He put the gospel and all the benefits of his death into their hands. Now, friends... That, that has some wonderful things to say about what happened in Ephesus. But if you're in Christ this morning, it also has some wonderful things to say about your story. Because regardless of what you think happened in your conversion, I think that these verses together teach us that Jesus, the feast Jesus prepared on the cross for his people, he then personally brought to you. And was unwilling, was unwilling to let any facet of his work of redemption fall to the ground. He ensured that you would receive it all. Yes, I am speaking of sovereign grace. There is no other kind of grace except sovereign grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Hello, question mark. Do you see how amazing it is that you believe in Christ? If you're in Christ this morning, yes, you you did respond to an offer of the gospel at some point. But what you didn't realize at the time, you're like a child who's born and is only aware that they're alive. But as they live longer, they realize all that's involved in the birth of a child. And it is a marvel. For you to profess faith in Jesus Christ means that the servant of the Lord came personally into your life, stood at the entrance of your dungeon, stood at the entrance of the tomb, and spoke just like Jesus says he would in John chapter 5. The hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of, God, a voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's what happened to you, my brothers and sisters. That's what God did. That's what Jesus Christ did. He came all the way from heaven. 
in the power of the Holy Spirit to raise you spiritually from the dead just as certainly as Lazarus was raised physically from the tomb by Jesus' voice. Amen. So the feast that he prepares, he brings. And so the question that remains is, are we enjoying that feast? Are we enjoying the feast or wasting it? When we think about the implications of this for our lives, friends, I want to press home the question upon each of our hearts. Are we enjoying the feast that Jesus has prepared or are we wasting it? And there is an urgent word here for both Christians and non-Christians. Let me, let me address our non-Christian friends first. Uh, I, I, my, my plea... It's really a plea. For me, this is not an intellectual game. For me, this is an urgent plea that you would not waste the feast that Jesus has brought to you again this morning. I mean, Jesus has come. This Here's what I believe, and you may think I'm a nut, and I don't care if you think I'm a nut as long as you believe what I'm saying. Jesus Christ has come from heaven again into this room by the power of the Holy Spirit and is standing forth from his word with all the feast that he prepared on the cross for his people. And he is setting that feast before you. He is calling you now from his word. He is speaking through my voice and he is calling you to come to the feast. And I have such good news for you. He is still calling his sheep. He is still speaking through his voice. He is still standing at the entrance to tombs. He is still entering dungeons. He is still giving sight to the blind, my friends. He's not done doing that and will not be done doing that until his return. So do not waste the feast. Do not waste the generosity of Jesus Christ in bringing you the feast. What else are you eating? What else are you drinking? You can't say you're not hungry or thirsty because the rest of your life, I don't even need to know the particulars. But I know because you're a human being. I know you're hungry. I know you're thirsty. I know you're going to things for food. I know you're going to places to satisfy the, the longings of your appetite. I know you're dying of thirst. So it is pointless to argue with me that you're not. It's even more pointless to argue with Jesus. Oh, he knows how thirsty you are. And he has a cup, a cup that he has personally filled with blessings of God that he has purchased as the highest of prices. And he makes that cup available to you for free. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost to you. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. How about my Christian brothers and sisters? Is it fair to ask you whether you're wasting the feast? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. First, let me ask you to think about this question. Are you enjoying and feasting on him individually? And perhaps as you think about your Christian life, you think, uh, if I asked you this question, do you believe you're Christian? You would say yes. And then if I asked you the follow-up question, well, why do you believe that? Oh, that why. How you answer that why is so important, my friends. Do you believe you're Christian? Yes, I believe I'm a Christian. Why? If your answer is, because I came to Christ at some point in the past, That's not an adequate answer. Because a Christian is not somebody who came to Christ. A Christian, my friends, is somebody who has come to Christ in the past and keeps coming. You have come to Christ and you keep coming to Christ. A Christian is a person whose soul's hunger, whose soul's appetite, whose soul's longings ride the the tectonic 
tensions, these deep tensions between Jesus' presence and Jesus' absence in our lives. I think about 1 Peter 1.8, right? I mean, this, this is how a Christian, this, I think this is such a good summary, 1 Peter 1.8, such a good summary of, of what's involved in being a Christian, right? Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. That's what it means to be a Christian. There's this tension. It's absolutely amazing. You've never seen him and yet you love him. And you don't see him now, but you believe in him. You believe in him without seeing him. And and that is a source of joy to you that is inexpressible. So, when you realize that that's what a Christian is, that the Christian's propelled by those tensions to keep coming to Christ. Because it's true, my friends, that there is always more of Christ to have than we are having. His feast is inexhaustible because he is. So I want to ask you whether you're tasting Jesus or feasting on him. Oh, be very persistent in examining your heart about this. Jesus did not pour his soul out to death. And the father was not pleased to crush his son on the cross so that his people could subsist on sips and nibbles and snacks. You don't sip a feast. You don't nibble a feast. You don't you don't snack so does that is, what does is your, your actual Christian life look like are you sipping are you nibbling because if you are you're wasting the feast my friends and at some point if you're only content with sips and nibbles you have to ask the question am I a Christian at all Because a Christian is like Peter. I cannot get enough of him. So, I ask you, are you feasting on him individually? And then secondly, let me ask my brothers and sisters whether you're feasting on Christ together with others. And here's where the image of the church comes in. See, this is not just a privatistic little thing that you live out in a silo, my friends. Do you notice what Jesus does back in verses 26 through 28? Everything he does at the table, he does to all the disciples together. He doesn't, he doesn't give them a little Tupperware container and say, go take this to your home, close the closet door, and then have a private little communion with me. Do you notice the feast that he gives? He gives to all of them together to be experienced and enjoyed together. He gives them the cup. He gives them the bread. And he wants all of them to eat it together and drink it together. So, friends, let me ask you to consider your own life here. Are you eating and drinking the gospel alone? Are you eating and drinking the gospel essentially churchlessly? even within the four walls of our church. Where, specifically and concretely, are you putting yourself at the disposal of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, in the service of your brothers and sisters in this congregation? This is not a a gospel hobby club. This is not a theological convention. This is not a spiritual filling station. This is a congregation of the reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And by his design, my friends, we are not only members of his body, but Romans 12.5 says that we are members one of another. We were never meant to eat or drink on our own. We were never meant or designed by Jesus. Jesus never intended his feast to be this solitary meal. So let me ask, let me push it one level further. Outside of your household, my friends, outside of your household, who in this congregation are you close enough to to be bearing their burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ? 
And let me ask a follow-up question. Who in this congregation is outside your household, is close enough to you to be bearing your burdens with you and thus fulfilling the law of Christ? Outside your household. Who, who, what are the answers to that question in your life? If there aren't answers, then you're eating and drinking alone, which is contrary to the will of Christ. Don't be a gospel tourist. Don't be a gospel sightseer. The church that Jesus is building doesn't have a drive-through window on it. Right? It's, it's his body. And the feast he intends will be eaten together, enjoyed together, shared together. So friends, this great feast that Jesus has prepared that he's brought to us, let us keep it. Let us keep the feast. Keep it together for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now for your mercy to apply this word to every nook and cranny and in every heart in this room as we most need and as will most bring you honor and glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.